0: Well, as we continue this morning through the book of Hebrews, as Dan has mentioned, we continue through chapter 7 this morning, and last week, for some of you who were able to be with us and others, I'm sure you have run across this at some point in your reading of the text of Holy Scripture is this mysterious individual named Melchizedek. And the lingering mystery was somewhat, perhaps not perfectly, but somewhat addressed and um, concluded, at least dealt with, the fact that this man Melchizedek, we can all take a deep breath, he is not the fourth member of the Trinity. We were able to at least solve that much, for better or for worse, we were able to answer some of the questions surrounding Melchizedek, this mysterious figure of how is it that it is said of him that he remains forever? I thought that's Jesus. Is he Jesus? Is he like Jesus? Is he a brother that we didn't know? Now orthodoxy is crashing to the floor. No. We were able to answer that last week. As we look, he is a type, that is God is ordering in Melchizedek, that which he is fulfilling in Christ. So he relates to Jesus by purpose. God is structuring or ordering in Melchizedek what he has then completed in Christ. But with that solved, with this mystery somewhat solved, and so we at least have enough confidence to keep going through the text, we run the risk, it seems, by the Apostle's point here in verse 4, we run the risk of skipping over the significance of who he really is. So we say, well, he's not this, this mysterious member of the Trinity. He's not that great. So let's just wait, whoa, whoa, slow down, which if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I appreciate a good slowdown. So it is that I am eager, as the apostle says, wait, 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 wait. I say, great, let's wait six, seven weeks, as long as it takes. Let's slow it down. Because if we recognize that he is a type, that is, he is a historical figure that is a sign symboling something greater to come, that corresponds to what we see in him, but are greater in the anti-type. So we say, if he is just a type, then let's keep moving. Wait, no, he says, verse 4, consider with me for a moment, he says, and I'm asking you, consider with me for several moments. How great this man actually was! I just a type whoa, whoa, whoa. Then how glorious it is that we grapple with the type. Why? Why is it significant that we grasp the the, the, the importance, uh, what we're being taught, what actually occurred, and was foreshadowed or forecasted or ordered in Melchizedek, a type corresponding to? Christ. Why? Why consider how great this man was? Because in grasping the significance of a type, that is something teaching us, showing us, ordering for us. What is fulfilled in another? How much more glory does the anti-type have? If we skip over the significance of the type, what we saw in seedling form, If we don't appreciate that, we'll never appreciate the anti-type, the way we are. If we take the categories of Melchizedek and we just do away with them, then we'll never receive their fullness in Jesus. So he says, wait, consider how great this man actually was because It will move you to worship Jesus Christ all the more as the anti-type and fulfillment of what is previewed in Melchizedek. Plug this into the original context here. Just by brief refresher, if we were to consider who is the apostle preaching this sermon to, who is he exhorting, consider the community for a moment. But we recall, this community is a community in crisis. They are in need of a, what we saw in earlier chapter 6, a more convincing word. They are exhorted, keep going. Because the threat is, the community begins to be squeezed, and then you opt out of the burden of bearing that squeezing And there's an option here in relationship to forgiveness, in relationship to a priesthood, in relationship to sacrifice. We can get out of this confessional community, the squeeze that Jesus is placing upon us, following Christ, being Christian. This squeeze, we can get out of it by reverting back to norms that we're used to. Things that are more politically well-received. So a community in crisis, then it's considering going back under the sacrificial system. Priests, order of worship, by representation of others, let's just go back under there. And the apostle is exhorting, there is nothing for you there. How is he doing so? He is arguing, as we have seen through chapter 6. And for those of you who are not with us through 6 and into 7 now, please be patient. You didn't need to be. We'll continue to go forward as I introduce to you the context with which you can receive this morning's text. The apostle is arguing that God, what God promised in Abraham, chapter 6, he foreshadowed in Melchizedek, and he has come to bring in completion to Jesus Christ. What does that mean for the priesthood? That means that there is no other form of priesthood but what is found in Jesus Christ. Every other form of forgiveness, every other form of atonement, every other form of worship is rendered obsolete. So consider the community in crisis. Let's go back. There is no going back, it's obsolete, it's been brought to completion in a man who we confess this morning is truly God and truly man, Christ Jesus. In him alone is forgiveness of sins. Every other form, every other method, every other process, and every other priest has been rendered obsolete in the unique work of Jesus Christ alone. So, when it begins to squeeze, draw all the more nearer. There is no other place to go for grace and mercy in your time of need. This is what the apostle is exhorting the community in crisis. Look to Jesus. For us, maybe we could consider Believers in Christ, looking to Jesus. We we maybe put it in this terminology, all our eggs are to be in Jesus' basket. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. That is the confession of the New Testament community. There is no other. I was running through the strip district uh, last night, making my way through there, and there's a sign out that caught my eye immediately because of this text. And it said, maybe you're familiar, do not be a sinner and miss fish for dinner. Right there, this text means something. Silly as it is, a gimmick to get somebody in for your eight pound fish sandwich. Nonetheless, if we look really into that, how much superstition has clouded the gospel? And created where there is an announcement of good news and freedom, there has been placed a dark law that kills and destroys. For the believer, don't be a sinner that is, by definition, be found in Jesus wherein my guilty conscience seeks no fish sandwich beside. That is the apostle. There is no one. There is nothing. There is no offer, process, or method, or priesthood outside of Jesus, who we confess as Christians, according to the Holy Text, he is both God and man in one. No atonement can be found outside of him. No creature can pay our sacrifice. No priest can bring an animal on our behalf. It is in Jesus wherein forgiveness is found solely Christ alone. So we learn of this beauty by an ordering or a forecasting of it in this man, Melchizedek, this mysterious exchange between Melchizedek and Abraham. We learn actually about the supremacy of Christ, wherein right now our guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside So as we come to the text this morning, let's begin to explore this theme of the supremacy of Jesus in light of Melchizedek, who is a type of the ant-type Jesus Christ. You'll explain all of this supremacy by unpacking the situation that is provided for us in verse 4. If you have your text, please join with me by looking at verse 4. What we're going to do is unpack verse 4 all the way through the text As we see, that's what he's doing. He's establishing an argument here as he speaks. Don't skip over, but see, verse 4, see how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Do you see there? Exclamation point. This is significant, what took place in this exchange. So, see how great Melchizedek is in light of this exchange. (coughs) We will... Take two steps this morning. I will give them to you up front and then uh, hopefully follow them through. And uh, we will end with a couple of considerations from the text of what this then teaches about the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Step one in unpacking how great this man really is. Number one, we will consider Levi's greatness in the receiving of tithes. That's what he's doing. So step one, in order to unpack verse four and the significance of this man, Melchizedek, that then enables us to grasp the significance and supremacy of Christ. In order to do the first step, in seeing more clearly the supremacy of Christ, we must grasp Melchizedek. And that's what he says. So see how great this man is. How will we do it? Two steps. One, considering the greatness of Levi. Secondly, we will consider, in considering the greatness of Melchizedek, and that much more the greatness and supremacy of Christ, we will consider, secondly, step number two, the greatness of Abraham in the giving of tithes. So the scenario of Abraham giving a tenth of the spoils, verse 4, is the key to unpacking the supremacy of Christ. So, step one. Consider with me, according to this text, Levi's greatness and being able to receive the greatness of Melchizedek and the supremacy of Christ. Look with me at verse 5 as his argument begins to explain Melchizedek in light of Levi. Verse 5, and those descendants of Levi, he begins to describe them there, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, those though these also are descended from Abraham. And you're saying, oh boy, I am not ready to dig long, hard, and deep into the Old Testament priesthood in order to grapple with what's going on in this text. You are, you are, you are, you are. You are so ready. So I'm going to do my best to shrink down our pursuit and really yet mine out what is the significance of the argument here. Why? 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 Because we must consider how great this man really was. We have to do this. And we will be deeply strengthened as we do so. There are in the reading of that verse three things that we must notice together. So there's many more. There's ways that we could go about it. But we will just together, I know that all of you... You know, are ready? Daylight savings time, energy is just jamming right now. So I know you came ready for all of it, but I will just give you three, three things we must notice about the Levi about Levi's greatness in the receiving of tithes. Number one, consider the greatness of Levi. Because uh, let me stop right there, <coughs> rabbit trail. Notice the integrity of the argument. He's arguing for the supremacy of Christ by way of recognizing the glory of Melchizedek. If you wanted to do that, how is it that usually when we do argue one with another or in other ways, we take someone's argument and we change it and we work on it and then we present our case? Normally, it's considered integral only if we fairly represent another, right? So so at this point, wouldn't it be great to just jettison the importance of Levi and just speak directly of Jesus and his greatness because they're struggling with Levi? No, he goes right there, and he doesn't downplay Levi's significance or the priesthood's significance in speaking of yet a better. He heightens the greatness, and he says, exactly. It isn't to be downplayed what Levi provides for the people of God, what he did provide for the people of God. I'm with you. He is glorious. The ministry of the priesthood is sacred. Great. And then he goes from here and he argues, furthermore, even higher, the greatness of Abraham. Not downplaying, but through them, exalting Christ. So, Levi's greatness. Number one, consider in Levi's greatness as he affirms the greatness of Levi as they are struggling considering going back. He heightens the significance of the ministry of Levi. How? Number one, his ministry. Notice in the text there as he speaks and affirms the greatness of Levi in the role of the priesthood. And those descendants of Levi, notice how he describes them. They receive the priestly office from a commandment in the law, and have a commandment. So they receive, number one, they receive the priestly office. Who do they receive it from? If the language there is, the tribe of Levi, that is most specifically Aaron and his sons. You say, again, I don't know all my Old Testament theology. That's fine, don't worry, neither here nor there. I'll supply. Most notably, Aaron and his sons, the tribe of Levi, is given the sacred ministry of the priesthood. That is to serve the people of God, making atonement, following Levitical law, representing the people of God on their behalf for sin and forgiveness, representation, ministry, sacrifice, this sacred ministry of the priesthood. Who gave that to them? The only one who could. God did. This is significant for them. They didn't decide one day, hey, we're going to be in charge of this. The glory that's attached to Levi is they received this ministry on behalf of the people of God. Who did they receive it from? God himself. They were set aside. And in your reading of the Old Testament, that makes sense to you. Now you're saying, ah, I remember reading that. I remember seeing that, that this tribe was set aside in service of the people of God in relationship to God in the manner of forgiveness, sacrifice, worship. It was given them of God. That is a ministry of immense importance to the people of God, isn't it? That's huge. And so we're considering Levi's greatness in the matter that we would then continue to climb and see the supremacy of Christ over Levi. But right now we're considering it in relationship to this man, Melchizedek greatness of Levi, number one, is, as he describes, they received the ministry of sacrifice or the ministry of sacred office of the priesthood from God. So the ministry, the greatness of Levi is, number one, the ministry that he received from God, the sacred office of the priestly ministry. Secondly, look at the text as he continues to describe the greatness of Levi. He's not downplaying, he's affirming on his pathway to the supremacy of Christ. They have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from among their brothers. So consider, number one, the ministry of Levi and the sacred office of priestly work. Number two, they have a law for Levi. That is, as ministers of the tabernacle or servants of worship, they were to receive tithes and offerings for their service. This is a commandment in the law. The tribe of Levi were to be cared for. Highly prized among the people of God for their services they render according to the approach to God. Forgiveness of sins. Sacred office of priestly ministry. This would be so significant for you. but As a a Christian, you're looking to Jesus already and reading the text with Jesus in mind. But come backward and consider how significant the role of the tribe of Levi was for you and your family. By faith as you brought your offering. As they were given, not you, they were given the sacred ministry of offering, that offering, on your behalf, by faith to God. And in so doing, they were highly prized, and a commandment in the law regarding you in relationship to them, brothers and sisters, was that you would provide for them, that you would give tithes and offerings unto them in the care for the services they're rendering. They have a law command regarding their significant ministry and role on behalf of the people of God. That's significant. So, again, he's affirming the greatness of Levi. Continuing on to the greatness of Levi, look at his argument as he continues to build it. Number three is their identity, just the sheer identity of who Levi was, where the tribe came from. Consider, they take tithes from the people. That is, and here's the description of their lineage, from their brothers. They do this from their brethren. Though these also, so both groups, those who give the tithes and those who receive the tithes are what? the very end of verse 5. They are both descended from Abraham. What does that mean to be in descent from Abraham? Well, most notably in chapter 6, it means that you are connected to him who possessed the promises of God. You're the people of God. So, Levi takes his descent from Abraham. They're brothers to you and you to them. Together, you're the people of God. So, the greatness of Levi is in that he also is a descendant from Abraham. In other words, he is a member of the people of God. That is the tribe of Levi. Now, this begins to shift the argument a little bit. So, it's significant that we would know also as descendants of Abraham. Those who share in the lineage of the brothers, those who will also share in the promises of God or are sharing in the promises of God made to Abraham. And all who came from Abraham share in the possession of those promises. So he speaks here of Levi. They are descendants from Abraham. One, it is, the text answers for us, one, it is a blessing, isn't it? Sure. Absolutely. That they are counted among the people of God. Tremendous blessing. However, consider also, in that statement, there is a limitation placed upon them also, isn't there? Tremendous blessing, they're counted among the people of God. They take their descent from Abraham, yet consider that. They're also descended from Abraham. There's a limitation placed upon that. And you say, I am not following you whatsoever. Great, let me reel you in then. Consider that they are descendants of Abraham in the receiving of tithes. What does that mean for us? It means this. Follow me. Put this together with me. This means that they did not receive tithes and offerings as a gift from inferiors. They received it by lawful command, right? They have a commandment in the law that they are to receive tithes and offerings from among their brothers. Do you get it? Brothers. Sharing descent from Abraham equals. They're not receiving these tithes as a donation or a gift from inferiors that say, here. That's not the process here. The process is a commandment in the law among the brothers. They are to be cared for from those in whom they share a brotherhood. Not inferiors, but equals. So why are they receiving a tithe? Why are they taking a tithe? Because of law and the services rendered on their behalf of the brothers. Follow me? Because the question that must be on your mind right now, as we now deal with Levi's greatness, affirming it, but it's limited. The next question in our mind is then is this what happened in that mysterious exchange between. Abraham and Melchizedek? Because remember, that's what we're considering right now, and the whole argument is how great Melchizedek is. And then we say, oh, never mind, never mind, never mind. Abraham's great. He is. He is. Well, then he must, just like Levi from among the brothers, he must have given the tithe to Melchizedek out of some sense of lawful obligation. That must be the exchange. That's the question. Is that what was taking place in this mysterious exchange? Abraham recognizing by law command, he ought to give to this man. Or is there something else taking place here? Well, step two in our process, you made it all the way through step number one. We're on step number two in the apostles' argument. Consider then the greatness of Abraham so that we can unpack this mysterious exchange. So that is, consider with me the Abraham's greatness in the giving of a tithe. I want to point two pieces in this text out so that now you're moving beyond. You've affirmed Levi's greatness from among his brothers, but you've recognized there's some limitation placed upon it. They share in descent from this man, Abraham. So clearly, we're now rising to consider even more than Levi, consider Abraham this equation now. Two things that we must note about Abraham's greatness. The first one comes in verse 4. If you look with me there, as the apostle develops his argument considering the greatness of Abraham, see how great this man, Melchizedek, was. Whom Abraham, now consider with me the greatness of Abraham in this exchange with Melchizedek, that you might glory in Christ all the more. Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Well, did he do it out of obligation? And who is Abraham? The designation there, number one, about the greatness of Abraham in this equation is, do you notice how Abraham is referenced there? What's the notation following Abraham? that the apostle drives us to. We've considered Levi and the brothers, and now we're tearing up to an even greater greatness, if you will, all the way up to Abraham now, and we're noting Abraham's superiority by calling him what? The patriarch. In other words... Thank you. Amen. In other words, there is no Levi if there is no Abraham. He's the patriarch. The position of primacy from among the brothers is Abraham, from whom all the brothers descend. So now we're heightening. Consider the greatness of Abraham in this exchange with Melchizedek, because it points to you to the fulfillment in Christ. Consider the glory of Abraham. He is the patriarch, the beginning portion of the Hebrew people. There is no higher prize in the lineage than Abraham. And yet here is the patriarch, the highest one on the food chain, giving a tenth of the spoils to someone else. It must be by law. It must have been by commandment. And the apostles getting ready to spring the trap on the supremacy of Christ because we know Abraham's greatness and he did this exchange with this man Melchizedek and he is the patriarch of all who have descended from him including there is no Levi without Abraham The second portion of Abraham's greatness that we must understand about this mysterious exchange between him and Melchizedek, that we would glory, not just in the type, but in its anti-type, who is Christ Jesus. That is the second portion of Abraham's greatness that is being noted here, is Abraham had the possession of the promises. He highlights, yet again, the function of the promises that God gave to Abraham in verse 6. Join with me if you look there in verse 6, but this man, picking back up with how great this man, who he had said already is Melchizedek by translation of his name, king and priest. He joins in yet again, verse 6, this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, this man received tithes from Abraham, repeating again the giving of a tenth of the spoils. Don't miss that fact. He gave and received... Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek and look what occurred there. He blessed him who had the blessing. He who had the promises. That's been the consideration since chapter 6 is the glory of these promises that God has given to Abraham by which... And I won't necessarily do it. We share in the inheritance of the promise, many children. Here's Abraham possessing these promises. He is the blessed one in uh, possession of the blessing of God. And Melchizedek turned and blessed him. It doesn't get higher than Abraham in the blessing. Here it has gotten higher. He, this man, blessed him who had the blessing we're still answering asking the same question why okay i get it so abraham who is blessed received a blessing and he gave a tenth of the spoils a tithe just like when we consider levi they received tithes from among their brothers that must be the exchange It's not the exchange. Then why did he tithe to Melchizedek? Why? Well, the text answers it in two ways. Why Abraham tithed to Melchizedek? The question is this. Is it by law or obligation? Notice how the text answers, because we know that when we give to Levi, it's out of a lawful obligation for services rendered. Is that what we have in Abraham? And the text answers it twofold. Number one, it is not by law. How does the text answer significantly for us that Abraham, in this mysterious exchange, gave tithes to Melchizedek, and it was not by law that Abraham was obligated to do so? Verse 6. Did you pick up on that. But this man, Melchizedek, notice in contrast to Levi, who we do give tithes to by law, he does not have his descent from them. It's not by law. He is not descended from Abraham. And as a Priestly figure. There is a commandment somewhere by law that the brothers ought by law, or must rather, by law, give to the priest. We recognize right there lineage is broken. Abraham donated, not by law. Uh oh. That's a problem then. That could possibly open the door to the consideration that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And it doesn't get greater than the great Abraham. It doesn't get greater. We we come from Abraham. We're the people of God in inheriting the blessings of Abraham. Surely he gave it to him by law because that just means there was an obligation there and, and, and everything was equally worked. No, the lineage was broken. He does not receive his descent from among them. There is some other obligation Abraham was under to donate or give a tenth of the spoils to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. So answer number one, it was not by law. Number two, because we're still asking, then why? And this is my concluding point with you this morning, and then we'll conclude uh, beyond that with its final consideration and application. So if it was not by law, because he does not have his descent from among them, it was not by lawful requirement, not by bloodline, then why? And the answer is quite simply this. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute. You cannot argue it any other way. But I want to go back. You can't. There's nothing there for you. But what about Levi? Consider Abraham. Abraham. Okay, so everything came from Abraham, but I'm looking to Abraham, who is superior in the position of primacy for all the people of God. I'm looking to Abraham. Well then, it is beyond dispute that in the equation between Abraham and Melchizedek, that the inferior is blessed by the superior substantively it's beyond dispute you mean Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek substantively inferior and that's why he gave a tenth of the spoils whom we receive our descent and the tribe of Levi and the priestly sacred office that we're seeking to return to, you mean it's less than what Abraham gave to Melchizedek? Yes. And I have so argued that at this point, continue in Scripture, it is beyond dispute, the apostle says, that in this exchange, the inferior Abraham was blessed by the superior Melchizedek. So is that why he tithed? Yes, Abraham recognized that he is inferior to Melchizedek. And he gave a tenth of the spoils. If your translation is spoils, the term there is built on choicest. So he didn't give him like, you know, The last thing after he bought everything he wanted. He he gave of the choicest. Why? By law? You cannot argue such. But by substance, he recognized he was inferior to Melchizedek. Let me finish the text as he concludes his argument and then end with a word of application. Look at the argument that he summarizes so well here. It is beyond dispute then that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Even though the inferior possessed the promises of God, he was still inferior. In the one case, dealing now with Melchizedek, uh, uh, wrapping up his argument, in the one case with Levi, sorry, are received by mortal men. So tithes are received by mortal men. Now he's going after the duration of their ministry. They are inferior to Melchizedek. Levi is inferior to Melchizedek, as was Abraham. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, the duration of their ministry. But in the other case, Levi to Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified, ordered, resembling that he lives. You see the duration of their ministry in contrast one to another. Levi is simply a mortal man tribe and the sacred office they execute has a limit but consider the superiority of Melchizedek it is testified through the text of scripture simply that he lives his ministry never came to an end he presses his argument even further for your sake this morning one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes Paid tithes through Abraham do you see what he just did there we considered two things this morning the greatness of Levi and the greatness of Abraham in relationship to the greatness of Melchizedek and he has sown both of them together and said one might even say what Levi is and everything that is there was represented in Abraham and all that Abraham is and together recognized their inferiority to Melchizedek i want to go back there's nothing there for you one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That is, by representation, Abraham represented Levi in the paying of tithes to yet a higher priest. So the question now in application ends this way. Well, then the listener might immediately say, well, then we, we ought to go to Melchizedek. You're right. Verse 7 stands out. You're right. It's beyond dispute. We should just go for Melchizedek. And he says everything that you see in the superiority of Melchizedek has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is simply a foreshadowing character God ordered in him through Abraham's tithe we see that Abraham recognized the superiority of Melchizedek and consider with me in application two things I read them for you and I know it's gonna blow you away We finalize it this way, so what does all of this mean for me? I came out through daylight savings time, I'm tired and hungry, so what does all of this mean? Consider with me, as a type of Christ, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, who was given the promises of God, right? Right? Two, as a type of Christ, that is a foreshadowing figure, the substance and duration of its ministry is superior to the entire Levitical priesthood in the paying of a tithe. It's beyond dispute. Did you see how I just applied that to you, to me, to all of us? As a type. He's superior. Do you see? A type. So it is this. If Melchizedek, who was a type, Is superior to Abraham and to all the Levitical priests, how much more is Christ Himself, who is the truth and the substance of all that was foreshadowed? From Levi to Abraham to Melchizedek, to Christ. I end with you with the reading of this text, and it was provided for you this week to take away from this sermon and consideration of what does this mean for me, and considering Melchizedek's greatness as he foreshadowed the fulfillment that has come in Jesus. I turn my eyes from Melchizedek to Jesus in whom is the fulfillment of all that He foreshadowed. Hebrews 3, verse 1, Therefore, this is your exhortation, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, do what? Do what? Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ.